Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Daralise Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about how in American society, there is an overwhelming and detrimental tendency to attempt to strip individuals with disabilities of their rights, agency, and dignity. Self-determination is a really important thing for everyone. Um, And we can't take that away from people just because they learn differently. It was 1942. Rosemary Kennedy was a happy, healthy 24-year-old woman, described by her friends as personable and bubbly. To her family, however, she was an embarrassment, fearful and contemptuous of young Rosemary's developmental differences. The Kennedys sent her for an experimental prefrontal lobotomy. The lobotomy failed. Rosemary was left paralyzed, incoherent, and incontinent. Her family's wish to change her had erased her personable, bubbly personality. For the next 63 years, the remainder of her life, Rosemary lived in an institution, the shameful secret of a powerful political family. In our country, We have a sad and shameful history of persecuting difference. And when it comes to people who are not neurotypical, there are many, many structures of systematized erasure and abuse, even at the highest levels, even in the White House. It happened with the Kennedys, and it happened with Donald Trump. When the election of 2016 happened, and we not only had a president who had mocked a person with a disability, but we also had somebody in the Department of Education who was hell-bent on rolling back the rights of um, children with disabilities that are trying to learn and get an education, which is their right to do. That's really when I began to be loud and proud about the fact that I am an autistic woman. That was Marta Rusick, a proud autistic woman and an advocate for herself and others. When I sat down with David Clisby, Ph.D., a biomechanical researcher, engineer, teacher, entrepreneur, and the identical triplet of two brothers with cerebral palsy. He told me about how painful it can be for those who have been labeled non-neurotypical. Othering does take place, and the best example is Mr. Donald Trump. So he othered a reporter very famously during his campaign. Um, I was astounded the way that the nation reacted, including people who I know, who know my brothers. It was embarrassing. What I happen to also know is the man uh, used it against his own family in a dispute over their inheritance. Uh, I don't know the details, but it had to do with the funding of the health of his nephew. These are the alleged details. Donald Trump's elder brother, Freddie Jr., died in 1981. Eighteen years later, in 1999, when Fred Trump Sr., the family patriarch, died, Freddie Jr.'s son, Fred III, spoke at his funeral. Later that night, Fred III's wife went into labor and gave birth to a son. That son had cerebral palsy. Donald Trump promised to pay for all the child's medical costs. Then, shortly thereafter, Trump's father, Fred Sr.'s will, was unveiled, 
a will Donald himself had helped to draft. And it was revealed that Donald's brother's kids had been deprived of their share of an estimated $20 million inheritance. Fred III and his siblings sued, claiming they were entitled to an equal portion of the estate and that Donald Trump and others had manipulated their grandfather into revising his will. Trump Sr. had had dementia when the will was redrafted. It was in the midst of this family drama that the man who would eventually become the 45th president of the United States retaliated against his already disinherited family by withdrawing the medical benefits critical to his nephew's infant son. It's not known what happened to Trump's grandnephew or how he's fared medically or otherwise because the case was settled out of court. As David was saying, uh, people can other very well. The Kennedys, I think, did it too. So it's not just the Republican thing. Uh, we know that it used to be the way that we did things to people who were different. Um, things have changed a lot in the 20th century, and we can thank the Nazis for that as well. Um, they're the reasons why we wrote a lot of the human subjects laws. It is estimated that as part of their attempt to annihilate those they viewed as different, the Nazis murdered 250,000 people with disabilities. Um, so, yeah, othering's real. It's not just the Nazis. In this country, we have a long and shameful history of persecuting and punishing individuals with disabilities. Beginning in the late 1800s and continuing until the late 1970s, many American cities had what are referred to colloquially as the quote-unquote ugly laws, a series of statutes that made it illegal for, and here I'll quote from a Chicago city ordinance, any person who is diseased, maimed, mutilated, or deformed in any way so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object to expose himself or herself to public view. It should be noted that the ugly laws did not restrict people with disabilities from appearing publicly for the purpose of performance or display. I'm not sure what would be worse, being relegated to the role of sideshow spectacle or being kept out of sight. Years and years ago, um, I'm in my late 50s, you know, when, when we were growing up, you know, it was a sin if you had a, a special needs child. You hit him in the closet, and I mean that seriously. I have, I have a gentleman that came from a different state that, thank God for his sister, he literally lived in a closet. The man is in his late 60s now. Okay, it wasn't until he came here about seven years ago that he finally had a life because parents didn't believe. You know, they were ashamed. You, not ashamed. Bring them out. Do everything with them. Show them they're no different. And more importantly, show your neighbors, show your friends, show everyone else that you should be treating my kid with the same respect and the same dignity as you do anyone else because they deserve it as much as anybody else. That was Larry Rubin, CEO of the Association for Adults with Developmental Disabilities, or AADD. The AADD provides recreational and learning activities for adults with disabilities as a means of offering social and life skills that promote independence and community interaction. The AADD currently has 160 members, ranging in age from 18 to 74, and they provide an essential role and service. As it is, children with developmental differences are largely underserved, and then they grow up to become adults, 
And if they don't have the financial means or family and community support, they are often left feeling that it is unsafe to be themselves or are denied their basic rights and dignities. Here is Steve Mallon, who wasn't diagnosed with autism until he was in his 50s. To hear him describe it, his childhood was hell. So um, I, as a child, I was knocked unconscious. I was urinated on, all kinds of stuff happened. Uh, it was just really tough. And my mother wanted me to be a little diplomat, and she wanted me to go back out there and take control of the situation, make friends with people, and then I didn't want to go outside. I didn't want to be involved in that world out there. I'd go to school, and the teacher would start a discussion. Oh, yeah, I know. And then in the, in the uh, at recess, the kids in the playground would say, you know, we're gonna, you better watch out. You know, you're making us look dumb. We're going to beat the crap out of you if you keep making us look dumb. So I learned how to just shut down and keep my mouth shut. Oh, God. So I went through school having to keep my mouth shut, being bored out of my mind. And, um, but I just, I was trying to fit in the best I could. So. Being bored because you knew all the answers? Yeah. But also because I couldn't do anything with them because if I engaged at my level, they would, they would threaten me. Those with disabilities are the largest minority group in the nation. According to the 2019 census, 49.7 million people aged five or older have some type of disability. That's 19.3% of the population, just shy of one in five Americans. There are a wide range of circumstances and conditions that can be categorized as disabilities, some physical, others neurological, many both. Sometimes these disabilities are acquired later on in life. Sometimes people are born with them. People can become disabled at any age and stage of life and in all manner of ways. In this specific conversation, I've decided to focus on developmental disabilities, a diverse group of long-term chronic conditions that affect a person before they reach age 22. These disabilities can occur prior to, during, or after birth. They can affect cognitive ability, physical functioning, or both. Common well-known examples include autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, and fragile X syndrome. In 2016, it was estimated that one in six, or about 15% of children aged three through 17, had one or more developmental disabilities, an increase of 21.35% from 2014. This means that 10% of Americans have a family member with a developmental disability. If you go into anyone's home, yours, mine, and everyone else in our community, I guarantee there's some type of a disability. might not be what we're calling a so-called disability now. You know, it's, it's not autism. It's not Down syndrome. But I guarantee there's something in everyone's family that you would see. And if we all brought it all to life, then the whole world would have a disability. And I really believe that. More often than not, a person with a developmental disability acquires their disability before they have the capacity to advocate for themselves. This makes for an extremely complicated set of conditions because those who are either born with a disability or develop one early in life are entitled to rights. 
yet they often lack the agency to demand those rights for themselves. And this means that it falls to whatever networks of support they have to ensure that they're set up for success. And there's a tremendous discrepancy. Some of these children have quality care, love, and support, whereas others are ill-equipped for life because their families fail them. And these failures can be shame-based, as in the case of the Kennedys. They can be financially motivated, like with the Trumps. Or they can have to do with any number of inadequacies within our communities and our homes. Nancy Schwartz, author of Up Not Down Syndrome, is the mother of three boys, the last of whom, Alex, has Down syndrome. During our interview, Nancy said a few times that part of her impetus for writing Up Not Down Syndrome had been to let others know they could choose the same path she'd chosen. I wasn't sure what she meant by that. So when you say considering this path or choosing this path, what do you mean? So the medical tests for uh, trisomy 21, which is the medical term for Down syndrome, are so simple now. I mean, you could literally do it just so quickly. Before, it was a big needle in the, the pregnant mom's belly, and it was time, and, you know, it just was so risky. Now it's so easy, and people can just decide, you know what, if there's any issue, I don't want this baby. I don't want this child. And, and that's, you know, typically whoever decides that, that is, I believe, their decision. However, I think if you can see a portrait of a family living with a child like this and see that, you know what, anything's possible. And there's so much love that comes with it. And and that's just kind of where I am with it. There is considerable statistical disparity regarding the termination of pregnancies following a Down syndrome diagnosis. Some sources say that after receiving a positive diagnosis of Down syndrome, 92% of women opt for an abortion while other sources cite a 67% termination rate. Either way, most researchers estimate that there has been a 30% reduction in the overall Down syndrome population due to post-diagnosis fetal termination. After a positive result, many doctors advise women to abort. Many women don't feel equipped financially, mentally, or emotionally to take on the task of raising a child with a disability. Like Nancy, I believe unequivocally in a woman's bodily autonomy. I also think that if we're saying a woman has the right to choose, we have to provide resources so she can be empowered to decide either way. There's a lot of prejudice against the developmentally disabled and a lot of pressure that can be wielded at expectant mothers before, during, and after the arrival of a non-neurotypical child. Here is Stacy Kunitz a director of college counseling with a private practice as an independent educational consultant. I always also think about intersectionality in all of this stuff. So so learning disabilities or learning styles, all of that is one aspect, but certainly, you know, race and class and gender and gender identity and all of those things really have big impacts on kids as well. And I think that the way that the systems are set up, you know, one of the things that makes me very sad is that kids with learning disabilities who whose parents don't have resources are much financial resources, are have many fewer choices than kids with learning disabilities whose parents have a lot of financial resources. And that to me is, you know, one of the tragedies of the American education system is that really 
you know, there are haves and have nots. And so, um, and I think that, you know, racism is prevalent still or and systemic oppression is still very much alive and well. And so I think it's really important for us always when we're talking about any kind of um, issue to be thinking about those things as well. Children, and this is true of all children, are born into systems, familial, cultural, social. There are systems that promote success and others that encourage failure. For every individual, neurotypical or not, early life experiences have an impact. We know about the negative ramifications of touch deprivation, the benefits of reading to one's child early and often, and a whole host of other early life practices and interventions, or the lack thereof, that impact us throughout our lifetimes. Not all families have the same capacity to provide for their children. Are you really going to be able to read to your child three times a day if you can't afford your utility bills and your lights are off? That was Melissa Swee, Outreach Manager for Action for Early Learning, an initiative that is focused on early childhood and early literacy in the West Philly Promise Zone, a federal designation for an area of high need and high poverty. Prior to her current position, Melissa worked with kids five and under and pregnant families through early learning initiatives and at-home intervention. I'm not saying, and neither was she, that poverty makes the person ill-equipped to be a parent. On the contrary, many parents without much in the way of financial means provide love, support, nurturing, and a solid foundation. As in affluent families, some do and some don't. It's highly individualized. But in the case of children with developmental differences, especially those of a severe and or debilitating nature, lack of financial resources can be a huge problem. Early intervention is both critical and costly. So for families that can't afford to pay for supplemental help, their children may not receive any assistance until they're old enough to go to school, even though an earlier intervention at a time when their brain was rapidly developing would have had a positive and sustained impact for the rest of their lives. Here, Melissa explains why she made the transition to early childhood development after having begun her career working with adolescents, and why she feels her efforts working with a younger population have made her more impactful. That was working with older kids, um, adolescents with developmental disabilities, and that's what really kicked off my interest in diverse learners and people with disabilities. But after I worked there, I was there for about seven years, and, you know, you just start thinking after a while about what would it have been like if this child received really, really early intervention instead of making it through preschool, kindergarten, elementary school, and middle school before really being identified as having a learning issue. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to go back to school for early childhood education and really study brain development and autism and developmental disabilities. So that's what brought me to the really, really young ones, um, because the period of time between zero and three is just this amazingly fruitful, crazy brain growth time. Um, and, you know, we know a lot about that now because we can do a lot more brain imaging and just have much better research. But for a long time, people sort of thought that babies were like these 
you know, blank slates and you kind of fed into them and that was, that's how they developed. But now they know, like, they're born with all of this stuff already happening. And then the interaction with the parent or the family is just kind of, you know, pruning and refining and hopefully responding and stimulating all of that. When it comes to issues of neurodiversity, it helps to have a flexible understanding of how brains work and how people develop. Personally, I've always wanted to believe in endless possibilities, while at the same time never wanting to push people towards normalcy, whatever that is. For a long, long time, you know, Alex still does not walk or talk yet, but when he you know, was developing a three-year-old, as a three-year-old, and then I would see a six-month-old walking down the hall. I would just get this wave of sadness that why couldn't he do that? And it would just really deeply affect me, the fact that he had so many things that he couldn't yet do that tiny, tiny babies could do. And then there came a point where I just realized that he has incredible gifts. My friend Jessica from Sweden reminds us that everyone has gifts. And she told me, you know, look, what, what is his gift? And I see he can do things that other people can't do. Like he creates this sense of love for people going through difficult times. If they hold him, they feel better. Um, he can swim 24 laps in almost an Olympic-sized pool. I can barely do eight. <laughs> he can hold a cello and bounce his bow and do things that other kids may not know about or do. He's learning to staccato on the cello. I mean, he's doing things that really, really shake me to my core and, and astound me. And so that sadness I had for him not being able to do exactly what his younger peers could do has really dissipated into this amazing idea that differently abled children have other gifts that they can share. And so it's just kind of the term I use often now to remind myself that, you know, he can do so many other things. Here's Matthew Newell co-founder and director of the Family Hope Center, and an expert on brain health. Matthew is also the father of an adopted daughter who has a lot to say on the topic of the incredible abilities of the human brain and how essential it is to believe in the capabilities of people. I don't go there in my mind to say, you've reached your neurological feeling. No. So my third child who I adopted, who was who's had a chemical brain um, and who was, I didn't know when I adopted her, was significantly injured when she was in third grade. And I knew when I, after I adopted her, I knew that her brain was in, in trouble. Um, and as we started to organize her brain and put her in school for a couple of months to see how she would do, the teachers all said to me at the IEP that my daughter would never have an IQ and never be able to read higher than the third grade. And these were professionals sitting at the table. This is back in 19, 1993, 94, you know, so it wasn't like way, way long ago. And, you know, she graduated from college with honors and she's, she's, uh, uh, was a great basketball player and she's a lieutenant in the fire department and she's gone for her physician's assistant degree. And when you understand the neurology, you don't in your mind, say to yourself, there's a limit to the neurology that can have. The brain's growing when you're 92 years old. If you're playing bridge and going for a walk and listening to music and talking to your friends and you're actually active, the brain is never stopping to engage and grow and mature. It does reach its capacity in terms of size around seven, but it doesn't reach its capacity to integrate ever. 
I asked David about the dynamic nature of the brain and whether it made sense to intervene to affect certain desired outcomes or whether acceptance was the answer. At least that's what I thought I asked. It was difficult to articulate what I wanted to say because I'm not well-versed in neuroplasticity and I don't have direct experience with these issues. Luckily, he was both brilliant and gracious and had a very nuanced and pragmatic answer. Does my question make sense? Uh, it makes very much sense. I think you're talking about looking at the proficiency versus deficiency and how hard we should draw that line and whether or not that line moves. Is that kind of what you're indicating? That's exactly. Yeah. Thank you for saying it far more succinctly than I could have. Yeah. And the answer is probably, I don't know, and nobody really truly knows. But what we do know is what we can do about things today with our knowledge and our research. We can try things. We can experiment. And we can know that, like, when you're feeling around in the dark, sometimes you discover that there's a whole room that you didn't know was there. And then sometimes you even get the benefit of finding a light switch. My question to David was about the flexibility and adaptation of all brains, neurodivergent and not. But there was also another question. What should the goal of intervention be? You're talking about various levels of learning disabilities or various levels of, of, of uh, difficulties. But, um, but I think the goal would be that kids are always growing their own self-advocacy skills so that they can in fact, handle life, um, you know, with little to no scaffolding. I really saw my role when I was working in the homes as being like a scaffold for the caregiver. I think just knowing that um, there's a spectrum, that's freeing because there's so many colors between red, orange, and magenta that you could or, or any other color range. I mean, it's not you this or you're that, because none of the labels before fit. And it just meant that you've met one Aspie, you've met one Aspie. And, and uh, you can pretty much, your, uh, the idea behind neurodiversity, don't try to cure us, don't try to change us, just accept the way we are. And that really gave me a picture that, in a sense, everybody's on a spectrum. There's no such thing as normal. And people think differently. And if you try to force people to think in the same way, there's going to be outliers that don't know how to do that or don't do it well. And you're really cutting off a huge amount of human potential when you, when you do that. Remembering that there are those other ways that humans communicate. Um, and then also that communication is only one part of development. Um, so, you know, there's physical development, you know, physical motor development, there's language development, there's, you know, social and cultural development. So there are lots of different ways to kind of look at, like, I love the theory of multiple intelligences because it kind of reminds us to be like, oh, yeah, not everybody is intelligent in the same way. We could be the healing when you're feeling all alone. We can be the reason. To find the strength to carry on In a world that's so divided We shall overcome We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun If what we're wanting to do is equip children to become the most independent adults possible, how do we accomplish that? 
a lot of it comes back to like learning how to empower families and not not necessarily have to exercise so much control over what you wanted the outcome to be. I used to say to families, you think that this teacher that you're bringing your child to is like the most important person, the kindergarten teacher, but you are the most important person. I'm sure it feels to parents like a tremendous amount of pressure in a lot of ways. But to me as an educator, that is so exciting because I don't know. I think it just means to me that we need to sort of reseat the expertise back in the family and back in the community. This works and it doesn't. Some families are exceptional. Moms fight for education for kids who have ADD. And if they don't, those kids aren't given those educations because teachers don't always have their back because the teacher has to deal with that behavior issue and thinks it's a behavior issue. As a professional, if you can incorporate people that love the child, the healing will improve, which it always does. Anytime you incorporate love into an equation, you get results that are more than just the repetition, right? All that, you know, love, if love would have cured children, they'd all already be done. But love needs an action plan. But they need, the action plan needs to be delivered in a way that the patient, the child, the human being is trusted and can be trusted and feels a part of the, of the healing. Other families fail. Other parents fail. Because the men run. Um, I'm honest, when I go out and I talk to a group of men, I said, you guys have to stay. I know you feel, men feel that responsible for the person um, being of special needs. And some men, I'm not going to classify us all, just don't have that nurturing feeling that can, that can raise a special needs child. I mean, you know, a lot of, mostly it's the mothers that are out there now. I have plenty of fathers that are, amazing and do more than the fact but that's what I think it is I think the parent you know they just want to throw money at it and put them away somewhere or, or just kind of block them and yeah it's sad it's it's so sad and and I think a lot of it has to do with fighting how are we going to raise them where are we going to find the money it's okay while we're in school because you know most if they can go to regular school you know so every school district has um you know, um, special needs classes and stuff, and they have a whole program until they get out of school. But once they get out of school, then they lose a lot of their benefits that have to be picked up either by state funding if they can apply for what's called the waiver program. Some of them don't, um, you know, uh, because of making too much money or something, can't get waiver money. So it's a big burden on families. According to Larry Rubin, Families with a child with a moderate to severe disability have one of the highest divorce rates. Certainly, that's not always the case. My husband and partner in this whole thing has been such a great help because we kind of divide and conquer. But even for the most devoted and attentive parents, having a child with a disability can challenge a person's conception of who and what their child was supposed to be. It can be really devastating to do assessments with families whose child is, is, you know, not doing well on a lot of the screenings and assessments. That's a really intimidating and kind of, like, it can feel very awful. Um, Yeah, because you feel like you're sort of 
you're like ripping a dream away from someone in a way. But at the same time, you know that the earlier the child gets this intervention, the better their life will be on so many different levels. He has an autistic son who's nonverbal. So he's had to go through all of the things of having high expectations for your child and then realizing that they have this barrier between them and the rest of the world. Quickly, I was not prepared for his diagnosis in any way, shape, or form. And I expected my whole life to have been ruined by his birth. And so, you know, a lot of society's ideas of what she would be like were in my head. Um, you know, that he wouldn't announce anything, couldn't do anything, wouldn't be loved, wouldn't be cute, wouldn't be invited anywhere. And, you know, now he's 11. I can't believe that that was my perception at that time because it's been the complete opposite and actually has been one of our greatest blessings. Here's what Larry Rubin tells the parents of his members. I truly admire you for what you're doing and for for how much of your life you're not living to make sure your child is getting everything that they need. Because of the disparity in the availability of social and community supports, so much falls to the caregiver. Assisting these caregivers, typically parents, is one of the goals of the AADD. And giving parents respite. They need respite on the weekends too. So if they if the children are out from 7 to 9 at night, one night a week, it gives them two hours. And any trip on the weekend is probably a minimum of six to eight hours. Now they have time for, for their spouses. They have time for their other children. They have time just to breathe. I had a, one of my members come to me uh, three years ago. And um, since they got married... I don't believe they were ever on vacation again once their son was born. And he's in his late 30s, or early 40s. So you're talking a good 30 years. I said, well, why don't you let him go on the cruise with me? I said, I will make this promise to you that I will work with him. I said, I know I won't burden my staff. Actually, he needed a little more help in showering. Um, so he did it thoroughly. And, and matching up clothes. Once you laid it out, he was fine. I said, I personally will do it. How can you do that? You have all these other people to take care of. <clears throat> I said, I will do it. Don't worry about it. He went away. They went out of the country for the first time, <clears throat> had the most incredible respite vacation that they've ever had. They've been going every year now because they know they can trust us. We're going to take care of him, and he, he's going to come back even better than when he left. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. I want to tell you about an emotional intelligence program called Next Level Trainings. In 2019, I personally went through Next Level Trainings, and in all sincerity, the Demystifying Diversity podcast would not exist if I hadn't. The leadership trainings opened my eyes to some blind spots I had in my life. They increased my capacity to give and receive love, to forgive myself and others, and to contribute more to this world. They really helped me, both personally and professionally. 
Next Level Trainings uses experiential exercises that are designed to help you to see yourself as you are, shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life and by extension, your community and the world. In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I can say from my own firsthand experience that the trainings increased my capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. They were life-changing, and I can't recommend next-level trainings enough. And Next Level Trainings is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com slash diversity. That's nextleveltrainings with an S slash diversity and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. Speaking of savings, for most of us, when it comes to money, we have no clear direction. We know what we want financially, but we get confused as to how to get there. John and Patty Lavin, the owners of Lavin and Associates, a branch of Primerica, are committed to offering all people the opportunity to achieve financial freedom. Lavin and Associates offers a complimentary cutting-edge financial needs analysis that works sort of like a GPS, or I guess you can think of it as a money map. By giving you a clear route from where you are to where you want to go, this analysis empowers you to become properly protected, debt-free, and financially independent, so you can worry less about money and enjoy your life more. I had a financial planning session with John a couple of years ago, and I went from $0 in the bank to more than $10,000, plus a retirement account. To set up a time to speak with John, a financial advisor for 40 years, and receive your free financial needs analysis, call him at 610-453-2331 or email him at johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And let him know the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. There are three important pieces of legislation to be aware of that pertain to those with disabilities. Section 504, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Section 504, which is part of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, is an anti-discrimination civil rights statute that prohibits institutions and organizations that are receiving federal funding from excluding, discriminating against, or denying benefits to anyone with a disability. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, guarantees a free, appropriate public education for all in the least restrictive environment. The Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, passed in 1990, prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in several areas, including employment, transportation, public accommodations, communication, and access to state and local government programs and services. 
in terms of ADA versus IDEA, right, it's like an employer has to make reasonable accommodations for you, but nothing says that anyone has to hire you. You know, nothing says that, you know, you have to be successful, right? There's no guarantee of success. So it can become really challenging. And so that's another reason why it's really important while the student has IDEA in place and while they're in high school, um, and I think they can actually extend those services up till they're 21, depending on how profound their disability is and whether they stay in high school. But, you know, while that you really want to make the most of all of those services while you've got them and use them to get yourself as independent as possible so that you can then, you know, go on to keep uh, being successful in your life. IDEA is really about ensuring student success, whereas ADA is about ensuring access. It's about making sure that door is open. I don't think in, you know, early intervention and in work with people with disabilities that we have the best bridges um, and that we make the best transitions. The most, like, intense transition, I think, is probably from high school to whatever's next, you know, independent living or college or whatever it may be. But one of the ones early on that's actually that can be very intense is if your child is in early early intervention and they are transferred from like the really early ages, like zero to three, where it's very based in the family, it's very nurturing, it's very supportive. And then they go kind of to the preschool years of three to five, where it's, you're not, you're just not given as much support. Early again on in his school career, it was really difficult. I mean, I think at one point the security guard at the school was like, don't come and hug him. You're not allowed in and we don't want your input and he's in school now. And, you know, that was a hard learning process for me because in his preschool, I could visit every day. Um, but then I kind of realized that we're a team, the school and I. And, you know, someone who I follow, Ernest Morell, says that his teachers of his children are like co-parents. And I think it's so beautiful and such an important thing to think about in terms of education for all children that, you know, we work together as co-parents helping these children to, to reach whatever potential they have inside of them. One of the essential functions of IDEA is to provide children with a classroom environment in which they are set up to learn. And until the advent of things like individual education programs, commonly known as IEPs, more inclusive methods of teaching were not available to those whose learning styles didn't fit within mainstream expectations. Steve Mallon did not grow up with IEPs or children-centered approaches to education. And it's scary because one of my coping mechanisms as a child was emotion was dangerous. If I showed emotion uh, out on the street, I became a target. And um, Anytime you show what you're feeling, um, you're open yourself for attack. That was my experience as a child. Anytime I showed emotion in the classroom, I was disruptive. And part of the problem is that um, I'm probably more emotional than people would give me credit for. Upon first impression, it might appear that education interventions would be solely beneficial to the individual with a disability. But that isn't the case at all. 
Melissa and I talked about how and why children with developmental disabilities being amidst typical learners adds value for all students and for teachers. We spoke about some of the skills that come from having a neurodivergent student in a classroom and how these students inspire teachers to expand the methods and modalities with which they impart information. There is a great value to having kids with developmental disabilities in regular classrooms, and that benefit is for the typical children. All of these children have equal value and bring really beautiful things to our classrooms. Suddenly, things become multidimensional. Children learn to communicate in a variety of ways, to adapt their approaches, to relate to a multitude of people, and to be more open-minded, flexible, patient, and persistent. Those are amazing skills. Those are social skills, but they're also professional skills in a lot of industries. How do we integrate kids with disabilities in a really valuable way into the classroom? which is something I think we still very much struggle with. Now we're really pushing for inclusion, which is great, but you can't just say, pop a kid in a class and then they're included, because we all know that doesn't mean you're included, you know? You can sit at a table and still be very ostracized. Well, and I think when you talk about val in a valuable way, like what I hear you saying is valuable for everybody, valuable for the child who may have previously been excluded, but valuable for the classroom, like that it, is, it actually serves all of us to include, like have variance in learning styles and variance in approaches. Is that, oh, am I, yeah. I think that's exactly right. I think that, you know, to be, to, for anyone, if you're a typical learner in a classroom, um, it's fine to be around a lot of other typical kids and you're going to learn a lot, but you're not going to learn what you'll learn being in a class that includes children with disabilities. But as we know, life doesn't stop when we age out of school. For kids with disabilities who are turning 18 um, and like sort of aging out of the system, depending on where you live, depending on how much money you have, there is real disparity in terms of what kinds of resources are available. Stacy was very clear that while a person has a scaffolding of support, they are best benefited by using that support structure to learn critical life skills and become equipped for whatever degree of autonomy is possible. Larry Rubin agrees. I asked him what the number one outcome he hopes to achieve for his members is. Independence, and that's what um, all parents, no matter if you're coming from my family or one of my members' family, want the same for their children. They want them to be independent, so God forbid when we pass, they have either places to stay or people to take care of them. They want them to have a social life and friends, and they want them to be accepted into the community. I think that, are the, and have jobs, they're the main things. If you get that done, the world would be great. Giving the person agency over themselves. Um, that's usually the biggest thing. It's really good to make sure that your, your occupational lifestyle is good. Because what we, what we tend to understand is people have a better quality of life when they have something that they can go do and earn a living. We want people to be able to, you know, be the best them that they can be. Like, the thing that makes people be able to keep going is having a 
a way that they can shine their light. I kind of wonder what society could be doing differently to make that less of just like this, it, it almost feels like the rug gets pulled out from under people and under families. Well, the first thing that we have to be able to work out is to find more more employment for special needs individuals. I mean, you know, um, we happen to be this year at our main event in um, May. We call it our Key to Independence Day. We're actually honoring giant supermarkets because of what they do in employment for special needs adults. And it's not just pushing the carts like you see out there. It's people working registers. It's people doing things through all throughout the stores. Same thing with Home Depot. You have a huge program. There's a couple of these larger corporations that really go go and really do whatever they can. And I'll tell you, some of my members work in Center City at law offices and other things, and they've been there 40, 45 years, and they'll always they come running to me, especially this time of year. You can't believe what bonus I got this year. I said, I bet you got a bigger bonus than I got. You know, I don't get a bonus. You know, and but it's their face. I got an award this week. You see how happy they are because their company understands that they have a value. Now, is it easy for all companies to do it? No. And this is where we need. And I fight in Harrisburg and Washington all the time. This is where we need funding to allow maybe a smaller store, give them some kind of uh, incentive to hire a special needs adult because, yes, they might need to have um, someone from uh, OVR or one of the other agencies there training with them for six weeks. Maybe they're going to have to have, you know, their manager maybe work a little closer with this. But it's not that it can't be done. This has to do with all humans. If you remove agency, someone's essentially disabled. Agency. This is a critical issue when dealing with any human being. And it is especially essential when it comes to advocating for the rights and needs of those with developmental disabilities, because there is often a cultural misconception that people whose ways of thinking or moving in the world are not conventional are incapable of speaking for themselves. One of the most essential things is not to leave those with disabilities out of the conversation about their rights and needs. This is not about us without us, meaning that the neurodiverse people need to be empowered to be their own advocates rather than having people advocating for them, prescribing for them, legislating for them, structuring programs for them. Let the neurodiverse people be their own advocates and give them the means to be able to do that. I feel like you're asking, like, how do we how do we encourage people to, like, really include people with disabilities? And I mean, the, the main thing is, like, include them in the discourse, which is which you spoke to a little bit during our conversation. Um, really try to center the voices of people with disabilities if you possibly can. Um, and I've talked a lot about really young kids, but when you have individuals who are old enough to actually express, and it doesn't have to be verbal, you know, there are many ways to express things. Um, And with technology, that's going to become even more exciting. Um, But, you know, try really try to center the voices of the people that it's about, which, you know, I know we've, we've heard this, and we all know this, but we still struggle around this issue with people with disabilities. It's like this constant tension of like, 
yes, we want to center your voices, but mm, I don't know, maybe the helpers' voices should be centered instead, which I think is a problem. And I, I don't know how to solve the problem at all. I'm not at all yeah. offering that. But, um, you know, I think we, at, at the least, we need to point to the problem and to say, we have to find better ways to center people with disabilities and find out, you know, are these strategies and interventions, are they really helping? You know, are they, are they impeding some of the progress that, that people want to make? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I can look at it from an educator point of view and say, oh, yeah, these things are good. Look at the research and all that. But are they actually improving the quality of life for the people who are actually living them? I don't yeah. know. I don't know either. The thing is, though, when somebody is trying to speak about you without you, things can go horribly wrong. And that's why you'll hear phrases like um, um, not about us without us, meaning that if you're making decisions about a particular community, in this case the autism community, that decision should really be made with the direct input and feedback of somebody who's going to be impacted by it. And what do we do if people's ways of communicating or expressing don't correlate with our ways of hearing or understanding? Nancy's son, Alex, is nonverbal, but that doesn't mean he is not communicating all the time in ways that profoundly impact others. The one thing that does strike me as perhaps like, you know, fairly consistently difficult might be the communication because we know as oh, a parent yeah. like you know you yeah. want to always know what your kid is going through so how does how is that for you buddy <laughs> i mean i was in sex with avenue on some elevator with a woman using sign language and it ended up i hired her to help him because i thought maybe sign language was the way and then we tried an ipad and because of his challenges all of those modes of communication are very very difficult because of his muscle tone and so just recently this year, we're going to be demoing uh, an eye gate technology where his eye will look at the word he's trying to say and it will repeat it for him. And so it's something that's kind of evolving in a process. But he's actually developed his own, his own type of language where we kind of know what his expressions mean. And he has learned some of the signs from that sign language teacher that I hired. And it's incredible. It's, it's truly incredible the way he has this underground way of communicating with his peers. Yesterday at his lesson, a little boy said, can I come along? And he has this way of just kind of interacting with the children without using words. That just, it astounds me. Still, Alex's mother does sometimes serve as a voice for her son. And it's a balance that's important for parents, teachers, allies, and advocates to strike. I think what he would say, if he were here in this interview with us now, I think he would say, thank God I'm here. And thank you for this beautiful family and the love of my friends and my community and my school. I'm so happy to be here. And every day, every day is a blessing. I think that's what he would say. <laughs> and probably he would tell us things he didn't know. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Daryl and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. 
Strong advocacy is required to prevent and or address abuse, neglect, and exploitation that people with developmental disabilities may experience. And this advocacy can prevent serious abuses, but it can also open doors to valuable opportunities that positively impact everyone. I've found that people I've met on the spectrum come in all shapes and sizes, and they're just just a, a whole nother slice of humanity. And I think the commonality then is um, not so much that they're all alike, but rather they've all had experiences of trying to fit in and not being able to do so because of the way the world treats them. I'd like to return for a moment to the Trumps and the Kennedys, the systems that perpetrate and politicize the marginalization of developmentally different Americans. In 1907, Indiana enacted the eugenic sterilization law, which then swept through the nation with 24 states rapidly enacting the same. Based on the false premise that individuals with disabilities would have disabled offspring, this law and the laws that followed called for compulsory sterilization. In a 1927 Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell, the court ruled compulsory sterilization constitutional. It's a decision that to this day has yet to be overturned. The vote was eight to one, with the lone dissenting judge neglecting to write an opinion. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, and I quote, it is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. Part of what silences those who are not considered to conform to societal ideals of normalcy is the belief that their lives are worth less and therefore worthless. I think all my life I've just developed coping skills, yeah. but those come with side effects. They're the most incredible individuals that I can tell you. And, and just a, a real quick story. A lot of our members, it's the highest divorce rate is people in special needs families. So a lot of them come from broken homes. <clears throat> we have a lot of them that, unfortunately, parents have, have passed on. And I have this one gentleman, his father died, <clears throat> I want to say maybe two or three years ago, this guy called me more than my own two kids do. I have an older son and an older daughter. Um, I was hospitalized in January just for a brief time. He called me every day I was in there. My kids didn't even do that, okay? Wow. To, to, to like five days later before, you know, my son was texting me, but my wife and I said, maybe you have to pick up the call and like talk to him, you know? Today, I probably get a call from this gentleman three times a Three or four times a week, he calls me dad. He um, he sends me Father's Day cards that are the most beautifully written Father's Day cards that make me absolutely cry. Um, this is the type of individuals, and I have a couple other members too. What I have one woman who, one young, I call them, I call them all young. You know, my kids first. Yeah, you have to yes. understand that, and I say that, you know, with and with their parents and everything. It's done with respect, and some of them are older than me, but it's still respectful because I'm going to treat you that way, and that's why I tell them that. Mm. But 
I have a woman, a young girl that fights with her mother constantly about issues, and she'll say, give Larry a call. We need to talk to him. He'll settle this right away. And it's just like <laughs> that makes you feel like you're impacted. And you have some people you started with that were so, have a gentleman, never spoke a full sentence. We took him on a cruise, and all of a sudden, um, one of the um, people on the cruise ship that work on the cruise ship came up to him, and he literally said the first sentence that I have ever heard him said, take me to Larry Rubin. It was like blew my mind. He never spoke. And when you see the milestones, they make, I, 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 they make me cry more than you want to know. But it's such a happy tears to see growth in them. A lot of them had had misdiagnoses all their lives. A lot of them were put on meds that didn't really help them for medicating them for something they didn't have. And some of them even had uh, side effects from these meds that really messed them up. So um, it was just helpful to meet some of these other people and say, okay, I'm different from them too, but you know, we're all kind of different. We need to expand the scope of support that we offer to families and to individuals and to stop fearing differences. Until we do that, we are at risk of everything from eugenics and mutilation to microaggressions towards people who are not seen to fit within society's expectations. We miss out on the incredible gifts that non-typical individuals offer, not in spite of their differences, but because of all the various factors that comprise people exactly as we are. If you look around, as you walk through the streets, you'll notice that everybody's a little different physically. What's also likely is they're different on the inside as well, in a, a unique way. I think one thing neurodiversity has to offer is to give the rest of the world a bigger picture of humanity. Because it is not about them without them, I thought it was especially important, rather than offering my own conclusions, to close with the voices of Steve Mallon and Marta Russick. One thing comes to mind right away. And uh, there have been all these movements to cure autism. And uh, one person said, the only cure we need is acceptance. So if there's any way to promote acceptance um, of neurodiversity um, and to, in effect, uh, see that as an asset. I heard of one um, doctor in Australia who was um, Simon Baron Cohen was the name of uh, when they would diagnose somebody uh, and say, congratulations, you're on the spectrum. Steve was referring to Simon Baron Cohen, director of the Autism Research Center, ARC, in Cambridge. Meaning that that is a, um, an attribute you can be proud of. And um, there needs to be more of that. There needs to be more um, of an acceptance and less of the disorder mentality. I think in any situation, if it's a decision being made about how to talk about autism or how to make sure the needs of the autism community are being met, we need to be in the room as part of that discussion so that nobody is having their civil liberties trampled upon, making sure that the information is accurate and that the solutions, if any solutions are warranted, are ones that are going to be as inclusive as possible for people who are on the spectrum. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, 
please subscribe. And if you'd like to join the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Melissa Swee, Marta Resick, David Clisby, Larry Rubin, Steve Mallon, Nancy Schwartz, Stacey Kunitz, and Matthew Newell, and to our episode sponsors, Next Level Trainings and Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Daralise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.